Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. It says, And he called to him his twelve disciples, this is Jesus, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, there's Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, we're not going to spend too much time tonight breaking down the names of the apostles and digging into their scriptural history that much. But I'm going to take a few seconds to point out a couple of things from these lists of the, of the apostles of the 12 apostles. Now, here in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, He called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits, cast them out, and heal every disease and affliction. And then it says, The name of the 12 apostles are these. And I want you to understand that um, there's a difference between the 12 apostles and the rest of Jesus' disciples. A lot of times the scripture will talk about the 12 disciples as well. But I want to remind you there are always, always, always more than 12. The, one of the ways we know that there are always more than 12 is the fact that in Acts chapter 1, when they have to replace Judas after he's committed suicide, they had to choose from among them someone who had been with them the whole time from his baptism until his ascension. So obviously there had to have been more than the 12 at, at, at the beginning, all the way through. We also see in, in one of the gospel accounts that John Mark was with them in the garden when Jesus was arrested and they grabbed him and he ran out of his clothes to get away. Well, how'd John Mark get there? Well, there was always more than the 12. In Luke chapter 8, we see that there were women who supported Jesus out of their own means, traveling with them. Well, that's because there was always more than the 12. John chapter 6, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in, here, in me. And upon hearing this, many of his disciples stopped following him. Folks, I want you to hear this. There's always been more than 12. But there are 12 that have been designated by Jesus at a certain point early in his ministry to be apostles. And we're going to deal with a little bit of that in just a second. But there are four lists of these apostles in the scriptures. One's here in Matthew, one's in Mark, one's in Luke, and the other one's in the book of Acts. And I'm going to kind of walk you through them and just point out a couple of interesting tidbits from them and deal with one issue that has given some people a bellyache over the years. I thought about taking the time to do a deeper study on Peter's story on the scriptures and then Andrew's story in the scriptures. And, and then I thought, even though I'm capable, I wouldn't even enjoy it. All right. And so we're, we'll deal with those things as we go. But let me just point out a couple of interesting tidbits in all of the lists of the 12 apostles, and we're going to take a look at all of them, Peter is always listed first. In every list, Peter is always listed first. 
Now, can anybody guess who's always listed last? Judas. Judas. Well, be careful. There's, a, there's more than one Judas. Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Actually, little trivia, in one of the lists, Judas is not listed last. Does anybody know which list Judas isn't listed last? In the one in Acts. The one in Acts. Because in Acts, when, he's, when they're listed, they only list 11. He's already, been, he's already committed suicide. All right? So go and take a look at Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read to you the lists. And I'm going to also point out a couple other things as we go. In Mark chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 19. It says, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, before we go to the other two lists, I want to point something out that hopefully you can catch on to here. You will always find the names listed in three groups of four. The twelve apostles are always listed in three groups of four. Peter's always first. Judas Iscariot is always last, except for the one in Acts, because he's not listed. But in the three groups of four, there's always going to be the same groups of four in each list. The first name in each of the groups is going to be the same. The order after that's going to be different. Like, for example, in each of the lists, you're going to see Peter's first, and who are the other three that are going to be in that group of four? Is going to be his brother Andrew and James and John. And you'll always see that. But you'll see is here. You have that. But this time, um, Andrew's listed fourth, not second like he is in Matthew. But the same group of fours there. The first name in the second group is always going to be Philip, interestingly enough. And then the group with Philip of Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of, El sorry, and Ma sorry, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, that four is always going to be together. They're not going to be in the same order. Philip's always going to be first. And the last group starts with James, the son of Alphaeus, or Alphaeus, and then there's going to be Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. So there's always three groups of four. They're the same three groups of four. The first name in each group is always the same. The order of the other three is mixed around. Go over to Luke, and you'll see it some more. Go to Luke chapter 6. Look at verses 12 through 16. <laughs> no, well, at, at the time of this writing, yes. At this point in history, when this is happening, when he sends them out, he hadn't betrayed him yet. But when Luke wrote it, or Mark wrote it, or Matthew wrote it, it was already years after Jesus' ascension back. And so by that time he wrote it, he had already betrayed him. Okay? All right, so Luke chapter 6, look at verses 12 through 16. While he... Uh, Sorry, let's go to chapter 6, verse 12. In th these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor." 
Let me show you one more account. Go to Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to deal with a discrepancy and, rest, and wrestle with that issue. Go to Acts chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 14. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away from, uh, sorry, a journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, and where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here we see the list again. Again, in this one in Acts, Judas isn't listed. Judas Iscariot, because he's already committed suicide at this point. This is right after Jesus' ascension. They go back to the upper room, I believe is where it was, where they had been staying, and it lists them. Did anybody notice something different between Matthew and Mark's account and Luke and Acts' account? I'm sorry? The women. Nope. Luke didn't mention the women. Luke and Acts mentioned there, There's somebody listed who is also listed in the other, somebody listed in Matthew and Mark's account who is also listed in the other two accounts, but he has a different name. If you notice in the third group, there's Thaddeus, but you don't see Thaddeus in Luke's account or in Acts' account. In both Luke's account and Acts' account, Thaddeus is called Judas, the son of James. So, are there 12 apostles, 13 apostles? What's going on here? Actually, I think the answer is kind of easy. Some people say, well, Thaddeus was just maybe a nickname, and that's possible. But I think there's a, a more biblical understanding of why. Some of these guys, we see, we see their new name. Well, in each of the accounts, there's Simon, whom Jesus changed his name to Peter. And we see James and John, whom Jesus also called this. We know, as we've already studied earlier, when Jesus had gone and, and met Levi, most likely Jesus changed his name to Matthew, because in the accounts of Levi being met by Jesus. Matthew, from the beginning, calls himself by his new name. But all the other counts, when they show the story of Jesus meeting Levi at, at his tax collector's booth, we know that his name was Levi. Yet when he calls himself, he calls himself by, I believe, his new name, which is Matthew. I think Matthew and Mark are giving Judas, the son of James's new name, which is Thaddeus. Because it's very clear, Judas, the son of James, was his original name. Because that's from his, tied to his lineage, and that Judas, the son of James. But Judas, the son of James, is listed as Thaddeus in Matthew and Mark's account. It's not a different person. It's the same person. But I believe that in Matthew and Mark's account, they listed Thaddeus's new name, or Judas, the son of James's new name. All right? Luke wrote Acts. He wrote it the same way. And since Luke wrote Acts, he wrote it the same way. Has nothing to do with the Judas Iscariot. No, had nothing to do with it because in Luke's account at that time he was still there when he was listing that. All right. So that's all we're going to really deal with about the names. There's a whole lot more we could dive into, but like I say, there's so much we got to get into tonight from this section of Matthew chapter 10. Now, the Bible says that when Jesus sent them out, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he sent them to, out to preach. And he did so to, de to demonstrate with power that the kingdom of God was in their midst. 
Again, we're not going to take the time to really break this down. I mentioned it last week, but we're going to cover it when we get to chapter 12. But look real quickly at chapter 12, verse 28. In chapter 12, when we get to chapter 12, we'll break this down in detail. But in chapter 12, Jesus is again being accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, Baalzebul. And in chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now the disciples had been sent out by Jesus to go preach what? Look at verse 7. What were they to go preach? What's in verse 7 of Matthew 10? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That they were to announce the kingdom and proclaim the coming kingdom and that the king was coming and the king was here. When Jesus sent him out, he sent them out to go preach this and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He gave them the ability to heal sicknesses and all this stuff and diseases. But he also gave them authority. Why? We see from Matthew 12 that that was demonstrating that the kingdom of God was at hand. We'll deal with it in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 12 about the fact that God was coming on the scene. Who's the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air? Satan and his minions. But when Jesus comes on the scene, someone greater, someone more strong is there. And so when he sent them out to preach, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, the ability to cast out demons, the ability to do these things to demonstrate the power of God and the kingdom of God. Now, let me also say this. Their main purpose was not to heal, but to preach. The healing was simply to gain a hearing. And as you do a faithful study of Scripture, you'll find that the miracles were to demonstrate the authority that they had been given to preach. If you do a study of the term apostle, capital A, if you will, and the Bible is very clear that the signs of the apostle, the, the proof that the, someone is an apostle in that sense, that they were able to do signs and wonders. They've been taught by Jesus face to face. It was demonstrating the authority that they had been given to the role that God had given them. At the same time, if you do a study of Scripture, you'll realize Jesus, uh, sorry, uh, Paul and Peter and those guys didn't just go heal everybody. We know the story in Acts chapter 16 where these girls with demons in them have been following these guys for four days. And finally, Paul just says, okay, if I've had enough, just come out. His ministry wasn't casting out demons. His ministry wasn't healing the sick. His ministry was preaching the word of God. And the ability to cast out the demons was to just get the proof that he had this authority and that he was from God. Beware of anyone who makes miracles their ministry. There's lots of people out there that will make that kind of a thing their ministry. The ministry is they were sent out to preach. He gave them this authority. I believe without question that God still does heal. I believe without question God still does miracles. I believe without question that those things haven't ceased. There are people out there that believe those things have ceased. They tend to use 1 Corinthians 13, which talks about this is going to cease and that's going to cease. But the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is very clearly heaven. Right now we see through a glass dimly or a mirror dimly, Paul says, but one day we will see face to face. We prophesy in part and we know in part, but one day we'll see clearly and it's talking about heaven. And it talks about these things are going to cease and these things are going to cease. Preaching is not going to be necessary in heaven. The context is in heaven. So I don't believe that Jesus is done doing miracles. But at the same time, once the door had been opened to preach the gospel, the miracles weren't as necessary. And you'll notice the apostles themselves even, once the authority to preach and the message had begun to spread, they didn't do the miracles as much anymore. But when they went into a new place, they would do the miracles to gain a hearing for the message. That's why you'll hear, see Paul says, I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. 
well, if you could just heal everybody by just healing people, why don't you? Well, that wasn't what it was all about. God would give them the authority to do so in settings to gain a hearing for the message. Stick with me. You'll, as we get to the end of our study, see how this stuff still happens but it's for God's purposes. Actually, I believe, and I know stories because of my ministry and what I've done all the years over the, around the globe and connections that I have, God's still doing that kind of stuff in parts of the world where they haven't had the gospel spread, spread as much. But here in America, good grief. Don't be surprised if you're not seeing as many of those miracles because we've been given the ability to preach it and to teach it and to heal it. For, uh, sorry, preach it and teach it and show uh, that this is God for years. It doesn't, he doesn't need the miracles as much today. And so that's what was going on. He sent them out to preach, gave them authority to demonstrate that the kingdom of God had come, one greater than Satan. Now, sometime after this, we see Jesus send out 70 or 72 others to give them, and he gives them similar instructions and warnings. Go to Luke chapter 10. This is not an account of the same account. This is a different one. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and then 17 through 20, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. All right? Now, at the same time, what I want you to see is that some, some manuscripts say 70 in twos. And I'm not sure where I am on that. I'm still wrestling with it. All right? But in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, or 70 others in twos, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for, that day for Sodom than for that town. Jump down to verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Again, another warning. It's not about the miracles. It's not about that kind of stuff. It's about the message. It's about the gospel. So I just say this to you. God's still doing miracles. I believe God's still doing those things, and we'll talk more about it later on. At the same time, Beware of those whose whole focus of their ministry is the miracles. But the main focus should be the message of the gospel. And that's what it's for. All right. Now, we're going to just a little bit do what I told you about last week and uh, um, do a miracle. Uh, sorry, uh, I, uh, the commercial that I gave you last week about how we're going to set up uh, the whole room tonight. Like you're going to go to work for me picking apples. And we're going to talk about how to recognize the man of peace in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to point out something very interesting here in Luke, sorry, Matthew chapter 10. 
that Jesus says to his disciples that we really need to talk about. In Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 7 and following. And Jesus, when he sent them out, he said, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. We're going to deal with what Jesus says here in the second half of verse uh, 8 into verse 9. All right, so here we see that Jesus tells his disciples that since they received their salvation without paying for it, they should not charge anyone to hear it. Do you see it? You've received without paying, give it without pay. First off, let me just point this out. If God gave the ability to cast out demons and to heal people with just a word, don't you think people would pay for that? They might even fill stadiums if you promise you can do that. Jesus said, it's not about the miracles, it's about the message, and this gospel that you've received, you didn't pay for it. Isaiah 55 says, come, buy those of you who have no money. Buy with, without, pay, without price. Salvation, Jesus says, come to me. We're not going to have a term there, but you want to go check me. It's Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. The gospel is free. You know it's not anything you've earned. You haven't paid for it. It's a gift of God. You believe it by faith and you receive it as a gift. But he said, I don't want you charging anyone to hear it. I'm going to go down a road here that I, I could take the rest of tonight dealing with, but I want to just point out a few things. So many years ago, about, about two years ago at the most, maybe less, uh, I was in my radio program going through the book of Matthew. And when I came to this section, the Holy Spirit truly convicted me in our ministry at Just a Preacher about the fact that we were charging people to buy a book. We gave a lot away, but we also would charge for it. If you had the money, we'd say, hey, would you mind giving five bucks for the book or whatever? And God, through his spirit, began to speak to me in this passage. And he said, Jim, I don't want you to ever charge anybody to hear the gospel ever again. I don't want you to ever charge anybody to hear teaching from the word of God. You know, a lot of Christian ministries today will say, we will send you this teaching on the word of God if you will make a donation. They'll even say, if you'll make a generous donation, if you give us money, we'll give you this teaching on the word of God. I'm not casting judgments on them to their own master. They stand or fall. But God spoke clearly to us and said to me, never do that again. And so we, from that point on, stopped charging for anything. I don't charge when I go speak. I never did. But I tell churches, I'll cover my own plane ticket. I'll cover my own uh, rental car. Got my own hotel. Got my own meals. We're just coming to share with you a God. And if you give us anything great, and if you don't, that's fine. We're still coming. And most of the places we go, we spend way more money going than that we ever get from doing it. But folks, from the moment we stopped trying to cover our expenses, God began to bomb and bless the ministry to the point that where my jaw will hit the floor if I told your jaws will hit the floor if I told you what God has done, some of the miracles that God's done financially since we stopped trying to cover our expenses, but just give it away free. If you want DVDs of teaching or CDs or whatever, just contact us. We'll send them to you. We even pay for the shipping and handling. Everything is free. We never want to say to somebody, you can't hear God's word unless you have enough money. Those of you that are signed up to go on our Bible cruises, if you've been going for years, you remember in the times past, we used to charge a registration fee. I got convicted about that, and we haven't done that for the last two or three cruises because in the same way, 
We want to invite those people on the ship who are lost to come to the Bible studies as well. And we don't want the people that are going with us to pay more than everybody else did. And on top of that, we're not worried about the fact that Chris and Allison know this because they're part of the leadership of Team of the Cruises. It costs us money to rent the theater every time that we are on the ship, every Bible study. We pay so many, so many hundreds of dollars just to have the theater. We also have to pay extra for their sound man and for their technicians. Even though we may not use them, they have to be in the room. We pay extra money to rent keyboards or whatever. It costs us money to do the notebooks and the, the name tags and all the registration, all the work. But let me tell you, from the moment we stopped saying, well, would you help cover that by paying a registration fee? God began to bless us to the point that it's not an issue. It's not an issue. And what I'm going to talk about here with ministers applies to all of us as well. Look closely at what he says there in verse, the second half of verse 8 into verse 9. He says, you've received without paying, give without pay. But then he says... And don't worry about how you're going to cover expenses. Look at verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And this is interesting. He tells them, never charge anyone to hear the gospel. Never charge anybody to hear the word of God. In the same section, though, he tells them not to bring any money because the laborer deserves his food. The laborer should be paid by those who receive the blessing, the Bible says. The passage in Scripture says if you've received a spiritual blessing, you should share financial blessing with the people that have done this. Yet at the same time, listen closely to me. As I talk to you about money and giving, I want to warn you, beware of those preachers who talk about money and giving. Here's what I mean. If we're faithful to the Word of God, we'll teach it when we run across these passages. But beware of those who focus on giving, 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 giving all the time and talk about giving to their ministry. No, the Bible says that we are to just preach, to teach the Word of God without, without fee. Just get, and trust God to take care of us. We don't have to come up with ways to try to come up with money. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me show you a couple of passages real quickly that deal with this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 17 and 18. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There it is again. Actually, if you look closely at this passage, Paul is saying, look, those who are in leadership in ministry especially those who are preaching and teaching, should be worthy of double honor. And listen closely, that double honor is financial. Over the years, churches have been willing to call the pastor, pastor. I've had so many people say, I can't call you Jim. I have to reverently call you pastor. And I always say, I don't call you Sunday school teacher. I don't call you usher. I don't call you sound man. I, I don't, that's just my role. Call me Jim. No, I've got to give you reverence. And then they'll, we'll even give you a special parking place. But they're cheap with their pastors. It's been an old story and a joke for years how churches will pray this prayer. Lord, send us a poor, humble preacher. You keep him humble, Lord. We'll keep him poor. Benefits are out of this world. Yeah, and listen, and churches will do a special thing on Pastor Appreciation Month. Folks, the Bible says you want to honor those who are in ministry, who are serving God and blessing you with the word. Be generous with them. But beware of any preacher that says... I need you to take care of me. 
Paul, write this down. Don't have time to take you there. Go to 1 Corinthians later on. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verses 1 through 18, he goes into great detail saying, because he had been accused of being in the ministry for the money, which is the furthest thing from the truth. If you even study Paul's writings over and over, he said, I didn't covet anyone's silver or anyone's gold. Peter even said that elders who rule well are the ones who aren't in it for the money, who don't lord their authority over people. Paul kept saying in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, look, I worked with my own hands. I paid for everything myself so I wouldn't be a burden to you and I'd be an example to you as well. In 1 Corinthians 9, he writes to the church in Corinth who had been, some people are saying that Paul's in it for the money. He said, first off, don't I have the right to be taken care of financially by the church? And he laid it out scripturally. He said, even in the temple, the people who worked in the temple got their portion from what was given at the temple. And he goes on and he lists this, but then he says this, I'm not writing this so that you'll give me anything because even if you did, I wouldn't take it because I don't want anybody depriving me of this boast. I preach the gospel free of charge. Now, that doesn't mean Paul never took any money from somebody. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, you'll see that he writes to the Philippian church and he says, you Macedonians know, that's verses 10 through 20 if you want to look at it later on, you Macedonians know that no other church helped me in giving and receiving except you alone. And he said, I'm not writing this because I'm in need. I've learned the secret of being content. I know it is to have plenty. I know it is to, to, to be in need. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But I'm writing to you this because of, I want you to get credit in your heavenly account. And then he said this. He says something that breaks all the rules of Christian ministries. He said, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. I am amply supplied. In other words, I don't need more. Most Christian ministries would say, even if you've got a big bank account, don't tell people that. They'll stop giving because we still keep looking to man to take care of us. But he said, no. By the way, did you hear what Paul said in that passage again? You can double check me in Philippians 4, 10 through 20. He said, no other churches helped support this ministry except you guys only. Yet most of our Christian ministries are saying things like, we've only got one church that's helping right now. We need more churches helping out and giving. I actually deal with mission organizations and people that want to go on the mission field. But the mission organization says to those missionaries, you can't go on the mission field until you have raised enough support to prove that you will be OK before you go out. Which goes against everything in the scripture, because Jesus said, when I send you out, you don't have to worry about how you're going to take care of yourself. You just go do what I tell you to do. I will provide for you. Yet how many Christian ministries say we're not sending you out until we know that you're going to have enough? Folks, let me tell you, we've done it the wrong way for so long, I'm sounding like a radical by preaching to you what the Scripture says. But I can tell you, this radical has seen God, what God does. There's truth in, I'm not a health and wealth guy, I'm not saying everybody's going to be a millionaire, but there is truth in the Word of God that we're afraid of. But we have to trust Him and just do what He says. He said, I don't want you to charge anybody, and I don't want you to even try to figure out how you're going to take care of your expenses. Just go preach it. Watch what I do. There's more I could talk to you about that, but we got to get to what I told you we were going to be doing tonight. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, but I want to, as I begin to teach you how to recognize where this man of peace is and where God's spirit is working, I want to remind you of what's just happened in Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. It says in Matthew 9, verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, we've dealt with this in great detail about that we're not to try to round up more workers. You remember last week, God opened my eyes to the fact that we've always read this as there's not enough workers. But he doesn't say pray that God will send more workers. God's done some of his greatest work with the few. Actually, the Bible says there's only few going to be saved. So we shouldn't be surprised that there's only going to be few workers in the harvest field. That's how God does his work. But look closely. What does he say in verse 38 there? Pray who? To who? Pray to the Lord to do what? Send out laborers into his harvest field. I didn't realize it until I was studying for this, this Bible study. Do you realize chapter 10 of Matthew is the first answer to that prayer? He says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. And what does Jesus do immediately in chapter 10? Goes up on a mountain, spends the night praying, comes, calls his disciples to him. And the Lord showed him, the father showed him which ones to pick. And he sent them out to go begin preaching out in the harvest field. Later on, he sends 70 or 72. Chapter 10 is the first answer to Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. That's kind of cool. Now, he instructs him in this case, though, to go only to the lost sheep of Israel and not to go to the towns of the Gentiles or of Samaritans. He's not forbidding them to speak to the Gentiles or Samaritans as they go, but to simply go to the Jewish cities in this mission. We dealt with that last week, how it's the, the Jew first and then the Gentile. But if you remember, Jesus himself, who was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, Matthew chapter 15, he says that, I was sent to the, only to the lost sheep of Israel. He still dealt with individuals from Gentile situations. The woman in chapter 15 who's from Tyre and Sidon, uh, the woman at the well who is a Samaritan in John chapter 4. Jesus wasn't saying, don't preach the gospel at all to those people, but he's sending them to the towns and the cities of the Jewish communities first. Now, but then he tells them, by the way, you do know, and not very long from after this, he's going to send them to all the nations. You know when he did that? When he was about to go ascend to heaven, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You're going to lose your Baptist card if you can't quote this one, folks. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And I say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and everything, teaching, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He eventually sends these guys to everybody. But at first he says, I want you to only go to Jewish cities. Okay. But he tells them that whichever town they go into, they're to let their peace come upon it. If it's received, they're to stay. If not, they're to move on. Now, what is this? How would they know or recognize if their peace is received? This is what I call recognizing where God's spirit is at work, being responded to, and where he's being rejected. Now, I want to teach you all how to recognize where God's at work and how to be a skilled and well-trained laborer in God's harvest field. And... Before I do, though, i got to reset the stage and reset the setting in our room. You're not here at a Bible study anymore. You're here as migrant workers to go to work for me because I own a big apple orchard, and you're here to go to work for me picking my apples. But I am not going to send you out into my harvest field to pick my apples until I train you to recognize what a ripe apple looks like. Why? I don't want you picking the ones that are green. I, I actually... Unless it's green apples. But, uh, they, but at the same time, I don't want you going out there doing damage to my crop. I'm going to train you how to recognize if it looks like this, leave it. Needs some more water. Needs some more time. If it looks like this, it's ready. Now, in the same way, like I've shared with you before, if you ladies go to the grocery store and you buy cantaloupe, just because the cantaloupe's there doesn't mean it's ripe. 
you got to look at it and you guys, you have learned how to squeeze and sniff and thump it, right? To do these things to check its ripeness. I want to teach you all how to squeeze and sniff and thump people without getting arrested <laughs> and how to find where they are in this process of God bringing people to his, his salvation. This is God's harvest field. This is his work. It's not about us. It's not about how good you are at it. It's simply learning to be skilled laborers. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send his laborers into the harvest field. And I want to train you how to do that from the scripture in the time that we have tonight. All right. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. As with the first thing you're looking for, as you go out into God's harvest field, are they even seeking God? First thing I want you to be looking for is, are they even seeking God? Are they even curious about spiritual things? The reason I say that is because of Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Now, most of us can quote Romans 3.10, how there's no one righteous, no, no, not one. But does anybody know what Romans 3.11 says? Very good, Chris. No one seeks after God. Look closely at what it says there in Romans 3.11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now, doesn't it say, though, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that God rewards those who diligently seek Him? That's true. But nobody will seek for God on their own, scripturally, if anyone even seeks for God. God has begun His work in their heart first. Go to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the question has always been over the years, well, does he draw everybody? Well, actually, that's answered right here in verse 45. And then it says in verse 45, he goes and says, it is written in the prophets, and they what? How many? All will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, some translations say listened, comes to me. Listen closely, folks. The Bible's clear that everybody hears. Not everybody hears in the same amount, but he's revealed himself through creation. All men are without excuse. Whether they've heard his written law or not, he's written his law in their hearts, it says in, in uh, Romans chapter 2. And that God says, the Bible says that God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ as the gospel declares. Everyone hears, but only those who listen who have heard and listened or learned are the ones that come to him. Those of you who have raised teenagers, you know full well, there's a big difference between them hearing you and listening, correct? There is a big difference between hearing and listening. Everybody hears, not everybody listens. But biblically, we're all dead in our sins and our trespasses, and we have to be made alive. I believe that the Bible teaches without question that God begins that process in our hearts. There are some people that think that God just saves you and you have nothing to do with that. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. We're responsible. The Bible is very clear throughout the whole of Scripture that Jesus died for the whole world, even though the whole world is not going. And everyone will be held accountable for how they responded. But I believe that if you're dead on the table, the Scripture says that God hits you with the paddles. You decide what you're going to do from that point. He begins his work in your heart. And as a pastor for years, knowing this truth... Whenever somebody would walk in the back door of the church one Sunday, I never thought to myself, ooh, a possible church member. You know why? I didn't want them to become church members because the moment they became a church member, they became a problem, and I didn't want any more problems. <laughs> but my attitude was this. If someone's walking in the door of the church, that doesn't happen on their own. Nobody, nobody will walk in the door of a church unless God's doing a work in their heart first. So I wanted to go find out what's God doing. 
Where are they at? The first thing you're looking for is, are they even seeking God? If you've hung out with me at all in any kind of public setting, and you see me run across people I've never met before, and people that I'm meeting for the first time, you will watch me squeeze and sniff and thump. How I do it is very, it varied in many different ways. But a lot of times I will throw something in the spiritual realm out just to see if it sticks. I'll mention my church or say mention Jesus or whatever. And I'm watching to see, does the person go, I'm, I'm curious. That means God's at work. So the first thing you're looking for, are they even seeking things of God? Are they seeking spiritual truth? Here's the next thing. Does that mean that because they're seeking God, they're ready to be saved? Not even close. The second thing you need to look for now is this. If they are seeking God, do they understand the bad news? See, we've been taught to go preach the good news. The problem is we've got a big world out there who, even if they believe that there's a God, they don't understand the bad news. If you ask most people if they died today, would they go to heaven? You know the answer. They'd say they think they are because they don't think they're that bad of a person. It's like me talking to some skinny person about this new diet pill that's going to help you lose all this weight. The person will go, don't need it. But there are also heavy people, kind of like me, who you'd say, hey, you got this diet pill and say, don't need it. You can't preach the good news until they understand the bad news. So what does God use to help unbelievers understand the bad news? According to Scripture. The law. Very good. Go back to Romans chapter 3. You're going to see it right in a row here. In Romans chapter 3, he's just said there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. And then in Romans chapter 3, in verse 19, listen to what he says here. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What you need to do when you run across people who are seeking God, but they think they're okay... You need to, as God leads you in each and every situation, and allow the Spirit of God to show you how to get them to understand the truth from God's Word about the seriousness of sin. Let me give you a couple of tools that will help. With, with, and when I say toolbox, here's what I, want, I mean by this. I got no problem with you learning evangelistic methods. I got no problem with you learning the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or uh, share Jesus without fear or evangelism explosion. I, I could list a whole bunch of them, the three circles and all that. But if you look at the scriptures, the way that Jesus witnessed to, to uh, Zach, sorry, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was totally different than the way he witnessed to the woman at the well. And there's too many people that think that the power is in the method you're using to get people saved. If you've done any kind of repair work, those of you guys out there, I use the ladies of the cantaloupe, I'm talking to the guys out there, you've got a toolbox at your house. And you bring the whole toolbox because you don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know if you're going to need a hammer, a screwdriver, a wrench. And you don't know if the screwdriver is going to need to be a Phillips or a regular. So the more tools you have in the toolbox, the better able you are to deal with whatever it is you run into. I got no problem with you putting all those learning techniques, techniques of sharing the gospel as tools in your toolbox. But don't go all around with just one tool. So I'm going to throw a couple more tools in your toolbox. If someone thinks that they're okay... They've done a few things, but, you know, for the most part, I'm going to be okay when I stand before God. Take them to James chapter 2, verse 10. James chapter 2, verse 10 simply says this. If you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. 
And over the years, I've had the opportunity to share this with individuals. And all I've done is said, look, you think you're okay. You've acknowledged you've done a couple of things wrong. Well, of course, everybody does, but I think I'm going to be all right. Well, let me just read to you this one verse or just tell you it. And you can go look at it for yourself. It says, if we're able to keep God's whole law and we only stumble at just one single thing, we're guilty in the eyes of God as if we broke it all. And then I'll usually leave, leave them this way and say, good luck with that. Because I want the Holy Spirit to do his work. Not me. Remember, John chapter 16, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of their sin and their need of righteousness and the fact that there's a coming judgment. Let me give you another tool. John chapter 5, verse 22. A lot of people think that one day I'm going to stand before the big guy upstairs thinking God the Father, and He's going to weigh my good and my bad. John 5, 22 says it this way, God the Father judges no one, but He's handed all judgment over to the Son. And you just share with them and say, look, you think you're going to stand before God the Father. He's not judging. He's handed all judgment to his son, and his son's measurement is whether or not he knows you. And you can take him to Matthew 7, 21 and following where it says, many will say to me, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're not going to stand before the Father. You're going to stand before the Son, and he's going to be the one who determines whether or not you get into heaven. Years ago, when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, there was an older gentleman in the church that loved golf, and he played with his buddies. And he had a friend of his that he wanted to get saved who was in his 60s, probably 70s at the time. And he thought, the preacher will do a better job than me. And that, that whole wrong mindset that I'm hoping to blow up. But he said, Jim, I want you to come golfing with us so you can get my buddy saved. And he puts me in the golf cart with this guy. Now, the guy knows before we even get to the tee box why I'm there. And he's not excited about it. So as we're driving from the parking lot to the first tee, he turns to me and he says, Preacher, let's get something straight. I said, what's that? He said, I don't think man should determine what sin is. Now, I knew why he was saying this, because he thought that I was going to sit there and point out all his sins and that I was going to tell him he was a sinner because he did this. And he wanted to throw that wall up and say, man should not determine what sin is. I said, I agree 100 percent. I said, but now since you brought it up. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And he said, yes, I would. I said, that's a wonderful thing to know. How do you know? He said, because I'm a pretty good person. I haven't really done a whole lot of bad stuff. And I, I asked him this question. I said, um, if we can get to heaven by being good, why did Jesus go through what he went through on the cross? What was the whole point of that? Now, most often when I ask that question to people, they'll go, I never thought about that. But this man's answer surprised me. He said, I have an answer for that. I said, what's your answer? He said, Jesus died on the cross to cover mortal sins. I've only committed venial sins. I don't need Jesus' death to cover me because I've only committed venial sins. Jesus' suffering on the cross was to cover mortal sins. I said, I got to be honest with you. I've read the whole Bible. I don't see anywhere where it says these sins are mortal sins and these sins are venial sins. Who determined which ones are mortal and which ones are venial? He said the priests did. I, I, I said, hang on for a second. Aren't you the one that said man shouldn't determine what sin is? He goes, I talked myself into a corner, haven't I? And I said to him, I said, sir, let me just say this to you. Jesus died on the cross to cover all sins. There's no difference between venial and mortal. They're all guilty before God. And if you've not had Jesus cover your sins through your faith in what he did, you're not going to heaven, even though you think you are. And this is what I said, by the way. And I'm not going to talk to you about this anymore unless you ask me. The word had been planted. You let the spirit do his work. 
I wish I could tell you that he got saved on the 17th hole. I don't, I don't know. He may never have. But that whole conversation happened between the parking lot and the first tee before we hit a golf ball. And I didn't have that all planned because I had never had anybody give that answer to me before. But the Spirit led me as I went. Folks, go out into his harvest field. Don't go with your tools. Go with a bunch of things ready, but just simply let him lead you. Are they curious? If not, move on. If they are, do they understand the bad news? And he'll show you how much. And that leads to the third thing. If they understand the bad news, guess what? They're ready for the good news. We can then share with them the good news. And hopefully you understand that the good news is, is, is what? You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I, you know the scriptures that are really clear. John 3, 16. How God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. How there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. We could go on and on. Romans chapter 3. Remember Romans 3? He's already laid it out here. That there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And that God's law, whether they've heard it or it's been revealed to them in their hearts, makes them all accountable for God. And all the law does is make us knowledge of our sin. Verse 21 though in verse 3, the very next verse. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How do you go out in the harvest field as a skilled laborer? You go looking for where people are seeking God. That's why. As Paul was led of the Spirit not to go into Asia, not to go into Mysia, but to go into Macedonia, all he did was look for a place of prayer. Why was he looking for a place of prayer? Because if people were gathered together to pray, they were seeking God. And as he went to the place of prayer, he met these women. Lydia becomes the first convert as he shares the gospel. Let's go in our minds back to Luke chapter 18. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. Go in our minds back to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. If you want to look at it later on, it's Luke 18, 18 through 23. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And whenever I ask this question, most people get the answer wrong. If you remember, the Bible says that this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus tell him? Ah, see, everybody gets it wrong. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me is the second thing he tells him. What's the first thing he told him? Ah, first thing he says is, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, why is he doing that? Is it, was he Jesus saying, I'm not God? No, of course he knew he was God and he was good. He's finding out, do you really understand who I am? Where are you in this whole process? What's the next thing he said? It's not sell everything and give to the poor. The next thing he says is what? Keep the law, the commandments. Why does Jesus, when we know full well that no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, why does Jesus, when the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, why does he say to him, keep the law? The purpose of the law is to show us we can't. And, the, and Jesus lists some of them. And the man says, all those I've kept since my youth. I can picture Jesus under his breath going, liar, that's one. <laughs> But the guy doesn't realize that he is a sinner. 
he still thinks he's righteous because he's kept the law. Remember, we've been in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to these self-righteous Jews who think they're okay because they haven't broken the law. And Jesus is taking them deeper and says, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You think you're okay because you haven't murdered anybody. But if you've had hatred towards your brother, it's the same thing. You're still guilty. And what Jesus does, listen closely to me, folks. What Jesus does is he repackages the law and gives it back to him in another form when he says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. If you were to look at Matthew, not now, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus sums up the law and the prophets into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the whole law. So the guy says, I'm able to keep the law, have since my youth. Jesus says, well, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's neighbor as yourself. And come follow me. And Jesus just repackages the law and gives it to him in another form. What does the man do? He goes away sad because of his wealth. Did Jesus chase him? No. Could Jesus have worded it different to get a better result? No, get out of this mindset of, I must have done something wrong because they rejected it. Folks, if the Bible says that many go to hell and only few go to heaven, we should expect that most everybody we witness to won't get saved. But where to go, and just because they're seeking God, only means that God's begun His work, but that doesn't mean they're going to fully respond. You know, we filled our churches with rocky soil and thorny soil conversions, which the Bible says aren't real conversions. People that God had begun his work. But let me say this to you. If you have a garden and you want to plant a garden, the first thing you're going to do is take the hoe or the rotor tiller to it, and you're going to break up the fallow ground. That's what the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah. By the way, it's the Holy Spirit's job to break up those hard hearts. Everybody's heart's hard. If there's no one righteous, not even one, and no one who seeks God, there's no such thing as good soil. Unless God had done his work ahead of time to prepare the soil. We are going out into the harvest field to see where God's at work and whether or not people are where they are in that process. It's so much fun. It's so freeing. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're getting them saved. You want to just see where God's at work and be a part of it. And you'll see, sometimes they'll say, give them a list and just leave it. And other times you'll see them get saved. But just because you broke up the fallow ground with your rototiller and your hoe doesn't mean that you plant right away, is it? What do you do? You go and get the rocks out. Then you get the thorns and the weeds out. Then you plant your seed. The Holy Spirit's job is to get them to that place. And if you'll notice, Jesus kept doing the same thing. He goes to Nicodemus, who came to him at night. Well, the fact that Nicodemus is coming to him at night and says, we know you're from God because no one could do the things you do if they weren't from God. Ding, 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 ding. My father's at work here. But all he does is plant more seed. You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things. As Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and he'll draw men to himself. It made no sense to Nicodemus at the time, but God knew that in time the Word and the Spirit would do its work and it would take root. Are you okay with that? Go out into the harvest field as a skilled laborer and stop trying to pick everybody and harvest everybody. Just go out and just let God show you what to do. And let me show you something from Scripture here. Stop thinking you're the only one out there working. And stop working like you're the only one out there working. Go to John chapter 4. Look at verses 34 through 38. In this situation where Jesus, led of the Spirit, actually goes to a Samaritan woman at this well. Even though he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, in this instance, God's Spirit led him to a Samaritan. 
The disciples had gone into town to buy food. They come back and they say, eat something. And he says to them in verse 34 of John 4, John 4, 34, Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. The people that usually plant the seeds aren't always the ones who harvest the crop. It's a different skill. But we've been taught in our witnessing techniques how to get someone from hard ground to the end of the track or the end of the presentation to get them to pray a prayer. Would you like to pray that prayer right now? And we leave out the work of the Spirit to do His work. Folks, you'll see real conversions, real Christians, if we would let God finish His work in their hearts, He will get them there. Our job is just to go out there and to look for them, love them, share the truth. And when it's a harvest, you don't think, boy, I did a good job. Someone else has already done all the labor. Jeremiah and Isaiah probably felt like failures in their lives. But you know what? God has used their writings for years and thousands upon thousands. Ethiopian eunuchs and others have gotten saved because of what God did through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And are you okay with just going out and just scattering the seed and never seeing a harvest? But one day when you get to heaven, you're going to have all these people lined up to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to close tonight with a true story. Years ago, I had the privilege of teaching uh, 200 pastors at a conference center in Thailand for a week. I flew out there. It was in a conference center outside of Bangkok. And 200 pastors came from all over Thailand for me to teach them. And I taught them the principles of a God-centered church, the book that I wrote. And I had to do it through a translator, and it was a very interesting week. But on the first day, we're at this Christian conference center, and we take our first break, and I go to the cafeteria. And as we're all sitting at these long rows of tables... Across from me sat an individual in their 20s that I couldn't tell if they were a male or a female. They were dressed in such a way, all in black, with the piercings and the tattoos and the haircut and the body shape. I couldn't tell if I was looking at a guy or a girl. And I said, my name is Jim. What's your name? With pretty good English, not perfect, but pretty good English, this individual said, my name is Chris. By the way, that didn't help me any. He said, my name is Chris. But I want to be called beer. I said, exactly. I said, beer as in the drink, the alcoholic drink. He goes, yes, my name's Chris, but I tell everybody to call me beer because that's what I live for. I said, beer, what are you doing here? This is, I mean, this room full of pastors from all over Thailand. And here's this guy who obviously is not a believer sitting right across from me. I said, what are you doing at this Christian conference center? He goes, I heard that an American was going to be teaching this week, and I came because I want to practice my English, and I'm going to stick with you all week so that I can practice my English. Now, I thought to myself, you don't know what you just signed yourself up for. So as I began to squeeze and sniff and thump, whenever he would sense that I was starting to go down a spiritual road, he would quickly stop me and say, no, 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 I just want to practice English. I don't want you to preach at me. It's okay. I'd leave it alone. And later on, whenever God would allow me, I'd do that. By the end of the week, beer hadn't come to salvation at all. But God asked me to invite him 
to the last time I was going to preach in, in the city of Bangkok, right before my plane took off, I was going to be preaching at a church called Takaset Church. And I said, I said, Beer, I don't know if I'll ever see you again. I'd like to see you one more time. I'm going to be preaching at this church called Takaset Church in Bangkok. Do you know where that is? He goes, yeah, I actually live in Bangkok. I know where Takaset Church is. I said, would you promise me that you'll come and hear me preach one more time? He says, I make you the promise. I'll do that. Well, I get there that Sunday and I sit in the church and I'm always looking at the door and he doesn't show up for a while. But all of a sudden, after about 10 minutes into the service, here he comes and he sits into the back. And I get up from where I am and I run and I sit in the back with him and I turn to him and I said, you're going to have to help me. Everything's in your language. I don't understand what they're saying. Could you translate the service for me? He says, OK. And he's repeating everything that's going on, the words of the songs. He's repeating the songs of how they're praising Jesus. And as their culture did, they take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And, 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 and they were taking the Lord's Supper. And I acted like it was something I'd never seen before, like it was Thailand or something that did this. And I was like, what are they doing? And he, he said, well, they're eating some kind of bread that represents the body of Jesus, which was broken. And, and they're drinking this cup, which represents his blood. And I'm like, well, that's really cool. Tell me more. Tell me more. So he's translating word for word. Everything that's being said, he's repeating to me in English. When it's time for me to preach, I get up, walk down the center aisle with the translator. I preach my message. Service is over. Again, wanting to see beer, walk the aisle. He doesn't. As I leave, I just tell him goodbye. He said, would you do me a favor? I said, what's that? He goes, I want to stay in contact with you. Can we email back and forth so I can keep practicing my English? I said, sure. By the way, his email address is Lethal Calamity. <laughs> Serious. That's his email address, Lethal Calamity. Now, at this point, so the, I, I, we make this promise. And I go back to America. For the next month or so, we've been emailing back and forth. But then after about a month or two, he writes an email and it reads like he's a Christian. And I quickly write back and said, Beard, did you get saved? Because you're writing like you're a Christian. This is the email that he sent to me. He says, Pastor Jim, I'm sorry for not telling you that I have become a Christian already. I decided to give my life to Jesus just a month after you had left Thailand then. I'm sorry that I didn't keep in touch with you due to my busy study. Actually, I was thinking of writing an email to tell you that I was reborn, but I was stuck with such many things that I forgot to tell you. Honestly, after you had left here, I keep going to the church every Sunday, wondering and protesting. Anyway, I became more and more open to Christ. And one day, I believe God is real, suddenly, after seeing a woman healed from crippled. All I want to do is saying thank you for putting me in the right way of God. If it wasn't because of our promise to meet again at Takaset Church, I wouldn't have tried to go join the church and got such a new life. Hope to see you again, Chris. Isn't that cool? Folks, that's what it's all about. That right there is the whole Bible study for tonight. He'll send you. Just go out every day just looking. Just looking for where he's at work. And he'll show you whether or not they need a little more time, need a little more water, need some more word, or they're ready. And don't think it's about you. Just enjoy the time and the fun of walking with the Lord and letting him show you what he's doing. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming. Love you.